Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. So you might have heard tell people telling us that social media, and especially social media involving culture and politics, is bad for your mental health. Well, that may be in some cases, but not in every case. In fact, in my own case, social media opened up doors for me. When I got my first social media account, that led to me writing publicly and then doing things like radio and media and even this podcast right here. So we want to talk about mental health in a better way. Does that kind of engagement help or hurt? So we're going to talk to our friend, Dr. Katherine Gordon. She uses a lot of pop culture to talk about mental health issues. She does her own podcast. She does her own writing. She's also working on a suicide workbook that lets people kind of bridge that gap if they don't have an immediate resource. And we're going to ask her directly with all the questions about mental health that were in the news surrounding the pandemic and just in general. Has mental health become a worse issue, or is it just something that we're more aware of? Did the pandemic of COVID-19 actually make people's mental health worse? Did the 24-hour media coverage, how did that affect it? And we're also going to talk about politics and culture and how engagement can be bad, but it can also be good, and it depends on the person. We're going to take a lot of the noise about mental health and social media and culture and politics and debate and things like that. And we're going to turn the noise down and turn up the actual knowledge from somebody who knows what she's talking about. Also, we're going to ask her for some positive representations of good mental health in media, like in movies and TV shows. And the examples she gives you might actually surprise you a little bit. It sure did me. So on this episode of Heard Tell, whatever you heard tell about mental health about social media, about what is good and not good for your mental health in the public sphere. We'll discuss it all with Dr. Katherine Gordon right after this. And I'm thrilled to once again be talking to my friend, Dr. Katherine Gordon, who I'm going to call Katie for the rest of this podcast because when I say Katherine, weird things with the accent happen. How are you, ma'am? It's great to talk to you again. Great to talk to you, too. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast, Andrew. I'm a big fan of your work and your writing, so it's nice to be on your podcast. I, I appreciate it so much. We actually did this one time before uh, for radio, and when we went to do the podcast, you're one of the people I thought of because one thing that hasn't changed since we did that radio talk is we still have a whole lot of mental health getting intertwined into things like culture and politics and the news cycle and the the common discourse. So you, you were automatically one of the people I thought of I really wanted to talk about. And let's just start there. You, you've spent a lot of time trying to figure out a way to take your clinical expertise and the, and the therapy side of it, but you use a lot of culture to try to use that. You, you've done that with podcasts. You've done that in writing with using uh, media like movies and TV shows and things like that. What What is it that you, it seems like an obvious thing to do, but what is it that got you to do it that way of, 
okay, well, mental health is more in the culture than it's ever been before. We might as well just embrace it and start weaving it all together. That's a great question. I was a professor before for 10 years, and when I was teaching, a big priority was to make the material interesting and engaging to my students. And I found that asking them about the art that they like, the music, the TV shows, the interests that they have, helped me to frame the information that I was sharing with them in a way that seemed like applicable to their daily life rather than just something in a textbook to memorize for a test. And seeing how effective that was, I also noticed when I'm doing therapy that if there's some kind of common interest, some cultural interest or some hobby, and we can use that as an analogy or some way to connect to some kind of mental health idea, that it just, it means more to people. And I personally, I, I like TV, I like music and all of that stuff. So I was kind of looking through those themes anyway. And then once I was no longer teaching, I wanted to continue doing that kind of thing. And podcasting and blogging seemed like a good way to do that, where I could talk about, you know, Cobra Kai or something like that. That's not obviously something related to psychology, although there is mental health in it. And hopefully engage people or just fans who want to think about the characters in a little bit of a deeper way, but also maybe learn some stuff about mental health in the meantime. It's interesting because you've done, I know you wrote about Cobra Kai. Uh, you wrote for us at Ordinary Times about BoJack Horseman, which is probably one people went, wait, that's about mental health. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, the whole series really is men about mental health. Now it seems like it's also crept into sports. We saw what happened in the French Open where, where she withdrew and she said, well, this is a mental health thing. Athletes are talking more about it. Celebrities are talking more about it. And then the one thing where it doesn't really seem to have, have, have broken through as much is politics, except in politics we want to sling on social media, well, that, that person's crazy or they're demented. or Where's that healthy line between the offhanded comment of like, okay, well, we're really not doing any good by slinging this terminology at somebody? Yeah, I tend to be very cautious about using any mental health or mental illness-related language to politics. And I think that, you know, I don't want to be too controlling of other people's language or something like that. But in my right. experience... I think that others get hurt. It's not like if someone says something about a politician, that politician will necessarily hear about it if it's not someone who is high profile or who has a big platform. But other people who struggle with mental health problems or who have family members who do, they will see that and they will hear it. And I think it just really adds to the stigma. So I try to think about what do I really want to say about this person? Do I find that they're policies make me angry or they don't make sense? What is it that I really want to say about it rather than trying to wrap it up into a mental illness category? And that's kind of my guideline. At the same time, I, I think that the words like crazy people, they use that as a descriptor. And I find that a little bit different than if someone's trying to say, no, this person is, you know, literally a psychopath or they're, you know, they seem like they have schizophrenia or whatever it is. I find that different than if someone's using the adjective crazy. But but there are people who find that offensive because people who've struggled have been called those words and bullied with those words. And so I try to be sensitive about that stuff and keep it to describing politics in ways that don't need mental health lenses to talk about what I find take issue with or something like that. Now, you've used it, and you mentioned that you used to teach, so it, it's kind of in your wheelhouse of your own experience, but 
there was kind of a move among some folks of, well, college students that don't have, you know, the correct, quote unquote, the correct political views, well, or if they don't have the right social justice views or they don't have the right policy views on this, well, clearly there's something mentally wrong with them and we should be using therapy techniques to fix them. And that just seems like something that's way counterproductive, not only inappropriate in an academic setting, but you've actually had to write about this of like, listen, if you're going to talk about things like mental illness, we're dealing with things that are errors and problems, not just disagreements and thinking. You, you've been pretty upfront about like this, this is, this is way unhelpful, not only to the discourse, you could actually do harm to these people, especially somebody like a student, which is a developing mind. Yeah, that's right. I I don't view therapy as the answer to everything. I'm a therapist. I value therapy. I think that it's useful, but it's often designed with a very specific purpose to address mental health problems and struggles. And I think when it gets over applied to any type of societal concerns or societal ills in some people's view, I worry about that. I I think that it's overgeneralizing. And like you said, it, it kind of suggests that the root issue is a mental health problem, when sometimes it's not a mental health problem. It's views that aren't popular or they're views that people might find despicable, but that doesn't mean that it's the result of a mental illness and therefore should be treated with therapy. And so I I think therapy has a lot of great applications and it's been tested in certain ways and been shown to be effective in certain ways. But the whole language being more broadly used, it does worry me because I think that it does, you can end up framing situations being about therapy and mental health that really aren't, that are by nature political or differences in opinions. You wrote about it before and you put it this way, and I'll just quote you. Furthermore, there's a long history of people from marginalized groups being misdiagnosed and poorly treated within mental health fields properly. Broadly applying cognitive disorder framework, CBT therapy, in a public way does not allow for cultural appropriate frameworks that a therapist are trained to use in treatments. Without that context and training, people might minimize or de- deny others' valid experiences, which could be harmful to their health. Yeah, I think that the way that an interaction happens one-on-one in therapy And if you're trained to pay attention to the person's experiences, what's valid to them, what fits them individually, that's very different than from the outside saying that someone is having a thinking problem, that they're mind reading or they're catastrophizing. In therapy, it's done what I would consider in a compassionate way. Let's look at this together. Let's explore this together. Let's look at the person's values. And I think when that gets applied too broadly, instead it can be used to over pathologize or or make people look ill when they're reporting real things. One of the clear examples, I think, is that for some individuals who belong to marginalized groups, they experience more discrimination and prejudice. And if they have a therapist who hasn't experienced that firsthand or become knowledgeable about it, they might think that the person's paranoid. And that can make them look like they're struggling with a serious mental health problem with paranoia and they need specific treatment for that, whereas they could very possibly have experienced that discrimination firsthand. And so really on a one-on-one basis, it's about exploring and looking at those things together and trying to see what's most helpful. But when we look more broadly and say, oh, people are, um, 
they're wrongly taking offense at things or all of this stuff when we don't know their specific situations. I worry that we're doing damage and, and just denying their experiences that really exist. You use that word catastrophizing. Now, that's a really big word. So walk me through that mm -hmm. like I'm five, because we see a lot of that in the cultural and political discourse where everything has to go from zero to 10. Everything has to be a crisis. Everything has to be immediately a existential threat. And then when people are talking about mental health, there seems to be that same tendency to do that of, oh, well, there's nobody with just, you know, shades of issues. They're either completely normal or they're totally need you know intense help and that's not true because there's a spectrum to all these things so you use that word but just kind of slow walk me through it a little bit that catastrophizing term because that I find that interesting because I've heard it in my own therapy when I've dealt with my own mental health that's something that I think a lot of people could probably use use a little explainer on Absolutely. So catastrophizing is a word that describes a thought pattern that's common, particularly with anxiety. And so one example I might give is that if someone has some social anxiety about giving speeches, which a lot of us have some of that, like you were saying, it's not an all or nothing thing. These things happen at different degrees and levels. But let's say someone has it to the point where they might fail a speech class because they're so nervous about giving the speech, but then they finally give the speech, and as they're talking, they trip over a few of their words. After they're done with that, if their thought is, the whole thing was a disaster, I'm going to fail, and all of those people think I'm an idiot, then that would be considered catastrophizing, because the reality is probably something more like, hey, whenever someone gives a speech, people trip over their words a little bit. Most people understand that it's a nerve-wracking thing and it's okay. So the catastrophizing is what the anxiety does, which is immediately go to kind of a worst-case scenario. So that can be expressed in a very compassionate kind way, which is, you know, I think people aren't thinking as poorly of yourself as you are thinking of yourself. But... What you're saying is that sometimes people, I think, in, in the political realm or in social media do speak in extremes, and I think that's to gain attention, right, to, to make something sound really important. So instead of saying something is a problem and might need to be framed as, like, a massive problem or a disaster or something like that. And those certainly exist in the world. We're, we're really aware of that. But sometimes it, it's kind of amplified, I think, to get people to pay attention and care enough about it. And especially with the competition for attention on social media, that is one strategy that people use. But it doesn't it can it can certainly make it harder to have dialogue about issues when when that's kind of the the pattern and where it goes. But we have all these people talking about how bad mental health, how bad for your mental health uh, social media is and how bad for your mental health politics is. But I wonder because, just to use myself for example, that the opposite was true to me. Getting on social media for the first time and then writing, that led to writing and that's now led to doing media and podcasts and radio and other things for me. Doing politics and social media with some well-defined boundaries for my own mental health and protection has been a wonderful thing for me. So for people that talk about social media being bad for their mental health, there's also a large cohort of folks that maybe they're isolated. Maybe they have um, circumstances or disabilities in their life where they, you know, social media is their outlet. I, I wonder, you're, you're the professional, I'm not, you tell me. 
I think for all the people saying social media and politics and things can be bad for you, there's also people that that can be a really good and positive thing, can it not? Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I've had a similar experience. There have certainly been times when I've had to take a break from social media because I find myself getting too upset or spending too much time on something when I have other things to do. But for the most part, I've connected with some great people. You know, I connected with you. I connected with some of the folks at Ordinary Times. It's led to some nice writing opportunities and and met other mental health colleagues. And so there's been a lot of benefit to that. And so I do think there are big individual differences. And I, and I am always a little bit I don't know. I, I'm cautious about anything that claims that overall social media is just bad and it's destroying us and any of those kind of catastrophizing claims. I think for some people it is that bad, but for a lot of people it's a benefit and for a lot of people it's kind of neutral. And so usually what I try to do at an individual level is just encourage people to look at their own moods and their own habits and values and kind of see how social media affects that? Is it bringing them closer to their goals? Do they feel more connected? Do they feel like they are feeling better with it, that they're in a good mood? And if they are, then keep up those habits. But if they're not, then it's good to just know when to take a break. And and just to be aware of that, because I think with social media and with a lot of things, you can kind of get sucked into it and lose track of time and stuff like that. So just checking in with yourself can be helpful. But I, I agree that the large sweeping statements they're not, uh, it's, there's more nuance than that. And we've seen a lot of these large sweeping statements because we just came out, well, we're hopefully coming out of the COVID stuff. A lot of people in isolation, maybe a lot of them for the first time in their lives feeling isolated in ways they're not normally to. Various places had lockdown type things where you couldn't really go out. A lot of people working from home, a lot of people losing their jobs, people losing, you know, having to make work-life decisions because of their kids out of school, you know, a lot of stressors. We heard constantly for the last, what, year and a half now that we were going to have this big mental health crisis because of the COVID situation. We're starting to get the numbers now, and not all the numbers back up what we've been told that whole time, do they? You know, suicide rates were down for the second year of road, even notwithstanding COVID. There's some data now that maybe the isolation didn't play mental health-wise the way we had all assumed and the way we heard in the media discourse. Uh, talk about that a little bit, because you've been writing and talking about it on your own podcast. We, we've kind of learned some interesting things over the last 18 months with, I hate to call it a social experiment, but for lack of a better term, the social experiment of COVID and all the things that have happened in the last 18 months from a mental health perspective. Absolutely. And I think it, it just goes to show how complicated mental health is. And in, and often people will say certain things are predictable in, in retrospect, but I think most of us mental health professionals and just general people were very concerned about the effects that COVID would have on mental health. And they did have negative effects on distress, anxiety, and depression seemed to go up, suicidal thoughts, people desiring suicide, that all seemed to go up, and yet deaths by suicide seemed to go down. And there was a very, there was a climbing rate of suicide deaths in the United States for many years, and in the past two years, the pattern has been that they've gone down. At the same time, overdose deaths appeared, based on preliminary data, to go up, so what it kind of paints the picture of is that 
There are a lot of people experiencing distress, and some of the data that the Center for D Disease Control collected showed that that seemed particularly people who were having financial struggles, who were in caregiving roles and things like that. Um, the stress went up, and yet there were some things that prevented people from dying by suicide. And so it's a more complicated picture than maybe anyone could have anticipated. Which, which parts of the data do you take hope from? Because I know I've been looking at overdose deaths because, I've, you know, we've got the opioid trial going on in my home state of West Virginia right now. So that's just kind of in the forefront of my mind. And, and the data on overdoses is kind of fuzzy because they don't really parse out why the overdose happened. So it could be a legit accidental overdose or a suicide or, or several different things. But when you see something like an overdose number that has a lot of nuances in it, um, where do you take some concern and where do you take some hope both? Because we always hear these stats in a negative light, but, you know, you're also a clinician. You're looking at this data. Where do you take the hope from? Where do you have more concerns going forward when you look at a stat like overdose deaths or the suicide rate going down? Yeah, it's that's a really important question looking at, at both aspects of that. The... And you're also right, it's part of what makes it so difficult to really understand suicide and overdose deaths are because it's not always clear what's intentional and what's not. And there are certain methods that people use to determine that, but it's some of it can be guesswork and not very easy to distinguish. So on, on the downside, certainly having the American public so distressed and turning to things like substances to escape that pain and distress is concerning to me. And I, there are a lot of parts of our healthcare system currently that are costly and not as accessible as they should be to people, including with mental health care. And that was especially strained during the pandemic because there was increased demand. On the plus side, more insurance companies reimbursed for telehealth during the pandemic where people could do therapy basically virtually through Zoom. And that opened up doors for people who maybe had transportation issues or other things that interfered with getting to therapy. So I, I think that has helped some people and may be one part of the picture for the reduced suicide rates. I live in North Dakota and there are a lot of rural areas and I have worked with people who they would have driven an hour or two for us to meet for therapy in person, but telehealth has allowed us to have weekly or every other week sessions without having to worry about the transportation, childcare, and all the taking off of work, all those other things that come with standard kind of therapy appointments. The, the other part that I really do draw hope from is that I do think that there were examples, despite all of the divisiveness and difficulty and stress of people pulling together. I think especially during the beginning of the pandemic, people were making a lot of effort to have Zoom connections, play games through Zoom, talk more regularly through FaceTime, and find creative ways to still be there for one another. I also know for some people, they felt working remotely if they were able to do that, allowed them more quality time with their families. And for some of them, that was helpful. So I think that those elements exist alongside some of the increased stressors and more concerning parts of the pandemic, for sure. I mean, a lot of people were grieving. I mean, it's just 
and then this to have people still finding ways to connect and support each other despite the tragedy, the heartbreaking loss of so many people around the world to COVID is to me gives me hope about what people are capable of. And it's pretty remarkable to me. I know you don't do projection as much, but I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot for it. Do you do you see the COVID now that we're going to start moving away from it? And of course, we can't predict the future, but do you see the experience of COVID as being one of them seminal moments? And I, I hate comparing historical events, but is it going to be one of those things where there's a societal shift or people have personal shifts or people talk about their kids like, you know, I was there, you know, where I was on 9-11 or where you were when the Challenger went down or when Reagan was shot and these sorts. Is it going to be one of those events with people, do you think? Do you do you sense that coming, that there will be a societal shift of, oh, yeah, that's where I gave this new technology like Zoom and FaceTime a chance or, oh, that's when I discovered I could do telehealth or do, do you see that being the societal change going forward, This that kind of an event? I do think so. I think that it put a lot of people thinking about mortality, you know, a lot of people think about that anyway, but even more so, especially those who lost people. Right. And and I also think that people experienced this sense of, many people experience both a sense of frustration with not getting more help from the government and communities to get through the stressful times, but then also hope when receiving things like a stimulus check or seeing the vaccines start to become widely available. And so I do think that those kinds of shifts affect people. I think that the telehealth, I'm hoping that's a permanent change in the landscape of mental health care because people can still go in person if they prefer it, but to not have to worry about insurance coverage for people, who it, it solves a problem for people who are out far away or who, who can't afford to see a therapist um, because of they can't take off of work. And so I'm hoping those creative aspects of finding new ways for people to flexibly see therapists and to work. I know in some workplaces, maybe they're allowing some more flexibility that some work can be from home and some in the office. I hope that some of those things stick going forward. And as we kind of heal from all that we've been through and it's not over yet. So I don't want to jump too far ahead, but it's hard right. not to, to be hopeful about that. I think one thing that we've seen in, in past, when we look at research, for example, um, with natural disasters, which I, you know, there, I can't really point to another pandemic. Sometimes there is a pulling together effect at first while the pandemic, for example, is going on might be similar to when a natural disaster is going on. But right. what they find is time passes that sometimes mental health can lose some of that protectiveness of pulling together as people deal with the aftermath of the issue. So it, it's hard to say. Now you talked about mor mortality. I wonder, though, because I think part of the ones that people that really wound up in, in COVID situation is, you know, you think about mortality differently for everybody. But most people don't think about the grocery store potentially killing you or don't mm -hmm. think about your kids potentially being carrying a disease to you. And those is, is it the invasive nature of something like a pandemic where it just it invades from so many different angles you don't normally think of and you don't have your guard up on it? Is that why it hits people so hard? I think that's exactly right. I think that the the vulnerability became such that everyone was at risk and there were different levels of it, but 
everyone's life was as impacted in some way, whether it's school shutting down or going virtual, or like you said, the grocery store being a completely different experience. I think that that awareness, unless, I, I don't know, unless someone somehow completely was tuned out and somehow is completely disconnected and off the grid, it's something you ha that everyone had to experience. They had to think about. I mean, a lot of people didn't see their relatives for very long periods of time. And it, and funerals changed, right? That there were a lot of times where people couldn't oh, yeah. gather to grieve. And so I think those kinds of things, they can be very devastating and sad, and they are. And also, alongside that can come this idea of the preciousness of, of life and health as well. Did the media coverage where I know a friend of mine compared it is like it was like having a hurricane for a year because we had the mm -hmm. the graphics and the and the counters and the you know you had the death counts and then you had the vaccine rate. Did did the media coverage, in your opinion, was it about right? Was it too over the top? Was it not enough? Where where because you know you deal with culture and you deal with um, the psychological aspects of how culture affects us. That's that's what you do. I, I can imagine a lot of people I know is just like, I just couldn't watch the news anymore. And then there was the other people who had anxiety. It was like, well, I have to watch the news because I got to be informed of what's going on because it, it's how you cope. So I know every, it's different for everybody, but in your opinion, were we at a healthy level with that? Was it too much? What do you think? I, I think you're right that there were a lot of, this came up actually a lot in th doing therapy over the past year plus was talking to people about what's a useful amount of information to have. And I think that some of the coverage that played down the effects of the pandemic, especially when there were literally hospitals at capacity or beyond exceeding capacity, having some news coverage that is showing, oh, it's not really that big of a deal and it's like the flu or whatever else, I think that can be harmful because it really makes people start to wonder if they're even perceiving the world accurately. So I think some of that stuff was difficult. On the other hand, I think there was some great coverage talking about mental health concerns, and I did wonder if that helped people to reach out to one another and to reach out for help more than they normally would because from the very beginning there was this expressed concern about depression, anxiety, taking care of yourself, staying connected. And so I could see those positive, that positive role being played there too. What I've heard from people is that if they and their relatives, for example, listen to different media outlets and have completely different perspectives on things, that that could lead to more conflict and tension. And so that's, I, I think it's kind of, a, it's a mixed bag of media coverage. So Situation Normal just turned up to 11 instead of 6 is what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Kind of a sad testimony, but it's the, light, the world we live in. Um, you have a you have a new project. You have a new book getting ready to come out. Talked about the suicide rates a little earlier, but um, you you've taken it upon yourself to actually write a book about it. You've been advocating that uh, we hear part of that catastrophizing thing we were talking about. Everything's a catastrophe. So the 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 thing for that is now we want to call everything a public health crisis. Well, the environment's a public health crisis, and the budget's a public health crisis, and some of those things very well may be. But it's just a terminology. But you, you've been advocating that suicide should be treated as a public health crisis. And, and when you wrote about it, you wrote that even if all the financial stigma and discrimination related obstacles were removed to accessing quality mental health care as they should be, 
and all existing therapists conducted scientifically guided practice, as they should do, the field could not adequately meet all the mental health needs. There simply are not enough therapists, hospital beds, crisis line staff in many pockets of the country to provide services to all who suffer at the time they need it. And with suicide prevention, time is of the essence. So I guess you've kind of taken that to logical conclusion and you've actually worked up a, a suicide workbook. How, how, how do you see that as kind of maybe being a, a, I don't know what you call it, a last mile thing or a time of the essence uh, type of product. Uh, tell us about your new book. Sure. I I have for a long time really just from listening to people and hearing about their difficulties connecting with high quality care in times of need has really struck me as heartbreaking because I hate to think about people suffering and not being able to get tools when there are effective tools out there to help people who are struggling with mental health problems. And so one of the types of therapy that has been examined with suicidal thoughts, depression, anxiety, and eating disorders is called cognitive behavioral therapy and some other, some other concerns too. But um, that type of therapy basically boils down to the idea that our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors are connected and that when people are struggling with suicidal thoughts, there tend to be certain themes. One is that the pain feels unbearable. Two is the belief that they're a burden on other people or other people would be better off without them. And so when we think about thinking errors, kind of talking about how catastrophizing can fit in that category, what we what the way it relates to suicidal thoughts is helping people to examine some of those thoughts, finding ways to soothe pain, finding ways to recognize their worthiness, and finding ways to kind of not blame themselves for all of the issues they face in the world. So it's kind of the simultaneous idea of this book is to try to empower people with tools that come from years of psychotherapy research and also my own clinical practice, things that I've seen that resonate with people and also approach themselves in a way that can decrease some of the suffering by reducing some of the excessive self-criticism that you tend to see people who are struggling, the excessive self-blame. And so that's what the book, the idea of the book, and the idea is that it takes people in small steps, because it's hard when you're suffering to sit down and step back and look at your thoughts and work through it, because it can feel really, really painful. And so right. my my sincere hope with this book is that it somewhat mirrors being in therapy with someone who cares about you and tries to break it down little by little and guide you to a place that feels a bit better. Right. A lot better is what I hope for, but I kind of emphasize small steps because it's a process. It doesn't happen. There's not a quick fix. No, and it makes perfect sense. Just so we don't end on too much of a, a heavy note because this has had, had a kind of a heavy topic to it, I, I did want to ask you a little bit, with all the media portrayals of mental health, give us a couple of the good ones for people to go look. I know you talked about Cobra Kai. I know you talked about BoJack Horseman. Give people a couple that, like, hey, I sell this in, in the media that's actually a positive and that they can look out and go, okay, this is one I can relate to and it looks good just so we have something positive to end on here. Absolutely. The TV show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend 
Crazy Ex-Girlfriends does not sound like a positive mental health show, but it really doesn't. It <laughs> I admit, but it's it's kind of interesting because the the character actually is diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, which is a very traditionally stigmatized mental health problem where people have a lot of suffering, trouble interacting with people, trouble finding ways to cope with their own emotions and it's viewed in a positive light, I think, that she's diagnosed with it. She is treated for it. It's a musical show, so it's it's unusual. Yeah, <laughs> but, it sounds like it. <laughs> it's, it's pretty unusual, but I thought they, they seem to do their homework to make sure that they were presenting this person in a non-stigmatizing way, even though she was showing some behaviors that not everyone would be fond of. So I thought that one was was good. I also thought A Star is Born, the most recent one yeah. with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. I mean, it's so, so sad, but right. I thought they did a really nice job depicting that there are all these different factors that contribute to his struggles. Right. And and that's kind of similar to Logan, actually, the Hugh Jackman Wolverine. Even though it's a comic movie, I thought that they did a really good job talking about some of his suicidal thoughts and depicting that too in kind of a nuanced, compassionate way. Yeah, and who can't relate to Wolverine? Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he and I have so much in common. <laughs> well, he was exiled to the north for a while, like you are up there in North Dakota, but we'll we'll talk about that <laughs> next time. Uh, Dr. Exactly. Dr. Katie Gordon, I appreciate your time so much. You have a live stream event for your kind of curtailing with your book launch on July the 1st. Tell folks about that where they can find you and your other work real quick. That's right. If you go to Catherine, K-A-T-H-R-Y-N-H, Gordon.com, it has all the information about the book. It's called The Suicidal Thoughts Workbook. It's available on Amazon and Bookshop and most places like that. And my podcast is called Psychodrama, where we focus on psychology, science, clinical issues. And we're doing a live stream YouTube event where we're going to talk about cognitive behavioral therapy and suicide. And I will be answering any questions that people have for me about that. Um, it has my email on my website and you can send questions to me and I will answer that on July 1st at 7 p.m. Central Time. Great. And we'll put all that in the show notes for folks. And uh, I uh, I appreciate you. I hope we'll do this again at some point. I'm sure we're going to have to because it seems like we're talking more and more mental health in the culture and uh, political discourse. So there's always going to be room for you to chat again. I look forward to doing it again with you again, my friend. Absolutely. I'd love to. Thank you, man. You know, pop culture can be a very powerful thing. Media portrayals can be a very powerful thing. Portrayals in movies and TV shows and in books and fictional characters can be a powerful thing. And these are all good things to represent mental health if we do it correctly. Same thing goes with our politics and the way we discuss culture and politics, like on this podcast or on social media. How do you use that for good? Not just the greater good that we all want to do in things like politics, where we're trying to debate a policy or improve people's lives or things like this. But also, how do you improve yourself? Is what you're putting out in the public sphere helping or hurting your own mental health? I wonder a lot of times with people that are doing things that they probably shouldn't do or that are obviously harmful in the public sphere if they're not acting out on their own stuff. Now, as we talked to Dr. Catherine Gordon about, you don't want to go diagnosing other people or assuming what their situation is personally. But it's pretty apparent that people that are not doing well in their personal life 
often project that out into their social media and their discourse. So it makes sense that if we all take care of ourselves a little better in our own mental health and we reach out to our friends and help them with their mental health, little by little, we can start making the discourse and our friends and our family and our community and then our nation and our world a little bit better. It's incremental development. It's not going to change the world overnight or even in your lifetime. But doing some good things as opposed to doing bad things in public, well, that's got to be good for your mental health, right? Thank you so much for listening to Herd Tell. We really appreciate it. Please continue to subscribe and comment and leave feedback and a rating wherever it is you're listening to this podcast, whether it's on iTunes or Spotify or Google or whatever service that you're using to stream, download, and listen to this podcast. If you have a preferred method of listening to a podcast that we are not servicing, please let us know. Herd Tell Show at Gmail or Herd Tell Show at the Twitter, and we will work a way to try to get it distributed to the place of your church. And we want to keep doing these shows we want to get them to you and we want your feedback so anything we can do to make that easier for you just let us know so until we talk to you again whether you're across the street or around the world thank you for taking time to listen we hope you and yours are well talk to y'all real soon all the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.